You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Myself and Dr. Mike bring you the best in talk radio in medical in the medical world. We discuss the topics that doctors are talking about in doctors' lounges all over the country, and we prepare you with the information that you will need so that you'll be able to advocate for yourself and your family and make the health care decisions that you need to uh, be making. We stand. This show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led health care think tank in the country. It's um, doing the work that needs to be done on behalf of our patients and for the medical community. We are fighting for the doctor-patient relationship and for health care freedom for all Americans, and so we need your support, and I urge you to go to our website, www.d4pcfoundation.org, and please support us. This is the beginning of 2019, so you have a whole New Year to make your tax-deductible contributions to our organization. So please, if you enjoy this show and you uh, support the work that we're doing in uh, fighting for health care issues, support the Docs for Patient Care Foundation. Happy 2019. I am uh, delighted to uh, be bringing you my first show of the new year, and I hope that everybody had a very happy holiday season. I wish everybody a very healthy and prosperous 2019. And we've got lots going on in healthcare in in uh, the country. It's a topic that just does not go away. And um, there's a lot of uh, interesting things that we have on the docket to talk about this year. And I'm uh, uh, really um, delighted to... Uh, kick the year off with a topic that we um, ended the year with, a, a topic that's very near and dear to my heart, and uh, and I think that it's going to be a, a very interesting show today. Um, we've often discussed how the doctor-patient relationship is threatened by government intrusion, and the risks are real, and doctors and patients face these risks every day in their exam rooms. And new threats to patients and patient rights pop up every day. And uh, the latest threat is that affecting parent rights, rights of parents to make decisions on behalf of their children. And uh, um, we've uh, discussed this, how there's political activists who are working to take medical decisions away from parents and uh, the decisions that they make on behalf of their children. That's right. You heard me correctly. There are political activists from groups like Human Rights Watch and Interact that are advocating taking away parents' rights to make medical decisions on behalf of their children. And as doctors, we're obligated to provide information to our patients and their parents, talk about benefits, risks, options, and suggesting the best course of action for them. We don't advocate for specific courses of action. We are um, the, um, the, the conduit to information for our patients because that's what we were trained to do, and it's a trust 
that we develop with our patients, and, and our patients depend on us to provide this for them. And as most of you who listen to this show regularly know, I'm a pediatric urologist, and and um, and pediatric urology profession is under attack right now, uh, and the rights of our patients and their parents. And um, this is a uh, very uh, difficult topic to really get into, and I and we have a lot of time, and we're going to get. Um, dive deep into this. And so in order to be able to do so, I brought in a very good friend of mine, a longtime colleague, um, Dr. Lane Palmer, who is the president of the Societies for Pediatric Urology, the SPU. He is the chief of pediatric urology at the Cone Children Medical Center in New York, Northwell Health System. He's a clinical professor of urology and pediatrics at the Zucker School of Medicine. He is um, one of the, um, really, the uh, champions of patients' rights in this area and has been working um, uh, tirelessly to try to uh, uh, preserve those rights for parents and their children. So, um, Lane, welcome into the Doctor's Lounge. Thank you, Hal. It's really an honor and a privilege to be with you folks today. So, so Lane. First, first off, um, as a P, you're the president of the Society for Pediatric Urology. So, what what is the Society of Pediatric Societies for Pediatric Urology, and and uh, what why does that organization even exist? Well, it's an interesting history. Pediatric urology is not a very old specialty. Back before the 1950s, in fact, there was no such thing as a pediatric urologist. And then there were a group of adult urologists who had a special interest in pediatric urology, and they started to um, come together at national meetings and discuss cases, and it was a very informal process. And over the next decade or so, they finally codified the group into a society called the Society for Pediatric Urology. Uh, and it was a handful of people, six, eight, it depended on who was able to travel to the site, um, and they all brought interesting cases, and it was a field in its nascency. Nobody quite knew exactly what the right thing to do was for many of the cases. Even the things we consider today as mundane were up for discussion and, and debate, and I'm sure it would have been interesting to be a fly on the wall back then uh, with this historical perspective. Um, but over the years, pediatric urology has grown into really as some people refer to it, the gem of urology, because we deal with issues such as those we're going to talk about today that are beyond the realm of what most adult urologists deal with. We also do intricate surgery, which is beyond the skill set of most adult urologists. So we're looked upon by our colleagues as really a special group of people. And the Society for Pediatric Urology has grown over time uh, to become the largest single pediatric urology uh, association. There are several smaller ones, um, but the SPU is now really the umbrella society for all of the pediatric urologic world. And our mission really is to encourage the study, improve the practice, and elevate the standards that advance pediatric urology and the care of patients who need pediatric urologists. Um, So we now have well over 600 members in the SPU, 
Uh, we have a very vibrant educational arm. We have a very vibrant academic arm. I think our SPU meeting is really one of the better meetings around. around and those who have visited who are not pediatric urologists have told us such. Um, and now we've had to move into the advocacy world because of the issues that you alluded to uh, and that we're going to discuss over the next hour. And just and, and this show is not just for physicians, although many physicians listen in. These, this, this show reaches many, many thousands of, of people who like to listen in and learn about medicine, health care, so the lay, the lay population. And so the, the SPU is really... Um, not just a society that represents the needs of doctors. It's a it's an educational society. It's an international society. It brings in the best and brightest and and the most um, up to date um, ideas and research to be able to advocate for the needs of the children. Absolutely and. As a field, this may be a generalization, but I think we pride ourselves on our ability to educate. It's really critical because many of the things that we um, care for, many other people have never even heard of or never saw a patient as such, and so parents don't necessarily have accurate resources, and before the Internet they almost had no resources, and depended on us to be able to explain many of the conditions or all of the conditions that their children have. It's not asthma, it's not diabetes, it's not cancer, thankfully. So these are things that most lay people have know someone with, let alone have ever heard of it. But when you talk about many of the conditions we interact with, hypospadias, um, uh, uracal anomalies, I mean, there are things here where the language is just completely unfamiliar to the lay person, and they depend on us <clears throat> to be able to explain in a very, as clear a way as possible and granted, it's hard to speak for everyone's ability to uh, to educate, but as a whole, we really do value and work on the the ability to to provide patients and their families uh, with all the information that they need. So now we're going to get into a more sensitive area, and the really why the SPU got into advocacy, and that is the whole issue of children who are born that um, don't look like boys or girls. And when I trained, when you trained, this was considered a medical emergency because back at, in the earlier days of, of pediatric urology or even in the, in, not, not so early, just, just maybe even 40 years ago, when, when a, a baby was born and the parents didn't know whether they had were taking a boy or a girl home from the hospital, that was considered a medical emergency, and and surgery and evaluations occurred back then, and surgery ensued, and things changed over time considerably. Why don't, why don't you get in a little bit into that? I'm happy to. As we know, the world changes. The perspectives we have evolve over time as we gain more and more medical and social information. And so back 40 years ago, as you alluded to, when a baby was born and it wasn't quite clear what the nature of their, their genetics might be, um, and there may not be anything wrong with their genetics, it just wasn't clear, it was considered an emergency. And a group of folks, different medical specialists, would be called 
Um, now, fortunately, back in those days, patients weren't rifled out of the uh, out of the hospital right after delivery, so there was a little bit of a luxury of time to be able to gather everyone together. Uh, but the pediatricians, the urologists, um, the uh, endocrinologists, endocrinologists, they would all come to the bedside and examine the patients, talk amongst themselves, so that they would have a sense of what might be going on without having the um, all of the, the blood work yet or any of the x-rays that would be required and start to have a conversation with the family and to explain what they are seeing, what the questions are that they may have, and what it's going to take to be able to help make the determination from a genetic standpoint as to what their baby might be. And there was an urgency for people to gender assign and we, as a, as a field, never gender assigned. That's not our goal. That's not our role. It's the family who, at the end of the day, makes a decision or should be able to make the decision uh, as far as the gender of rearing. And so while even back then people were accused or physicians were accused of playing God and deciding what gender the child was going to be, um, there were recommendations in terms of technical ability. What can we do if what we're seeing is not going to match the gender that you're going to raise your baby. Um, so there were significant limitations. And I think that may have played into the decision-making process back then. Fortunately, I'm not old enough to have been part of those decisions or conferences uh, 40 years ago. But I know that that was part of the, of the, uh, of the process. And so patients were, were forced. Now, what we don't really know is did what was going necessarily through the minds of the families. Clearly confusion, clearly an understanding as best they could of what might be going on. As I said earlier, there were no resources. So parents had to make decisions um, quickly or not quickly. I mean, it didn't mean that just because they decided at the time that they left the hospital three or four days later that they didn't then change their their mind and, and patients weren't uh, raised differently. However, the urgency to try to make a decision was there. Today, that's changed. Our surgical techniques are far better than they ever were. Our understanding of the um, social integration of the child is, is longer than we thought. Um, parents are very, very comfortable, and in fact, they're the ones that have really driven this. Um, they weren't quite sure when they went home exactly what decision they wanted to make. And we all came to realize, you know, that's okay. They have the right to make a decision with all the information that they're provided when it becomes available to make a decision. And it's not for us to prescribe the time course of that decision. It's for the parents to decide upon for themselves. And we all came to realize that. So it went from being an emergency to an urgency. And when I say an urgency, it was an urgency for parents to understand that there was an issue that needs to be addressed um, in a discussion. But it wasn't that mom, a few hours after delivery, is now bombarded by a team of people. Now it can happen in a little bit slower pace, and it becomes the urgency to have a discussion. It's not an urgency to assign or, or make a decision as to what the gender ultimately uh, of rearing is going to be. So I wouldn't even call it an urgency anymore. We bring it up. We have a discussion. Parents 
will get as educated from us as we possibly can offer them with the information that we have at the time. And then they go on the Internet and they get information, some of it misinformation, some of it good information, depending, as we all know, of the, uh, of the site that folks go to. And then the discussions now happen in a multidisciplinary uh, approach. There are teams that are much bigger in scope than we had before, and they get further educated. And, and Lane, this is this is a good time right here to take a hard break. Okay. And we're going to go ahead and get back to this in the next segment in the Doctors' Lounge. So stay with us. We'll do. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back in the Doctor's Lounge. Thanks for being with us. And my guest, Dr. Lane Palmer the president of the Societies for Pediatric Urology, and today we're discussing the um, sensitive topic of ambiguous genitalia, intersex, and uh, the political controversies that are um, brewing surrounding uh, surgeries that uh, pediatric urologists perform on children who are affected with these uh, conditions. And, Lane, just to be clear, we're we're not talking about something that happens very commonly, are we? No, we're not talking about anything common at all. Uh, it happens in approximately one in every eighteen thousand births. You right. know, it's interesting because the um, I don't want to call them the opposition because they're really not opponents. They 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 think that they're uh, advocating on behalf uh, of the children, but those who uh, oppose the idea of surgery until children are significantly older, um, try to blend the data. They try to uh, mis- misrepresent information and provide misinformation. They'll, they walk around and mention the fact that this is as common as having blue eyes. Well, the incidence of having blue eyes is about one in every six or seven people. So what we're looking at and what we're talking about is an extraordinarily rare occurrence. So why don't you tell people what we are talking about? So we're talking about children who, when after delivery and the physical exam is done, the, the um, appearance of the genitalia, the, the phallus, whether it's a clitoris or a penis, is not exactly the way most people know it looks like. The hole where the urine passes from may be much lower on the area, on the penis rather, the um, there may be significant curvature uh, to the phallus. The um, instead of there being a urethra and a vaginal opening, there may just be a single opening. So there's a, a broad spectrum of of diagnoses. There's a broad spectrum of what is seen, and there are lots of variants of normal. There are minor conditions, things such as 
as cordy. That's just a bend of the penis. Well, I guess if you're going to talk about, strictly speaking, atypical genitalia, that might fall into it. But there is no uh, associated gender issues or uh, gender identity issues with patients who have cordy. But in order to help make the numbers appear much more prevalent, uh, all of this simple non uh, you know conditions that are really not part of, of congenital problems that affect the genitalia but do not affect any in any way the 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 way that a patient views himself from a a gender standpoint that is exactly right so that's much more common and really not an issue but what we're talking about is very uncommon and it's easier to identify it today than we did before only because there's so much better prenatal care and most parents know or if they don't know the information is available as to what the what their karyotype whether they're xx or xy so if they know this is x those are the chromosomes those are the chromosomes so if you have two x chromosomes you're genetically female and if the genitalia don't look anything female they look a lot more male that's a lot easier now to make that identification because there are lots of boys who have severe what's called hypospadias where the whole of the penis is much lower and knowing that they're boys and they have a hypospadias then they are far 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 more likely to just be boys with a severe urethral problem and it's not an intersex case but the people who are advocating against genital surgery in infants and and small babies or young children are trying to conflate these issues and put them all in one category, saying that no surgery on the genitalia should be performed until the child is able to either assent or consent, meaning that they either agree or they they choose. That's correct. Now, whether that's a uh, political strategy, because they know that if we're talking about something that... Ha- need surgery four, 500 times a year at the, at the most, that there's not a lot of traction to be gained from that. But if you throw in all of these other diagnoses that are very commonly and rightfully operated on when their children are younger, um, then you create a much larger issue, a larger, far larger than what there really is in reality. And the data are very clear for all of those, for all of these, uh, uh, these issues right now, we know, there's clear data that doing these surgeries younger uh, are better, and uh, and the satisfaction level among the patients is higher than if done later. And they may argue that the opposite as far as the intersex patient, but we know that all of those other patients, um, and you know it as well as I do, Hal, you do a hypospadias when the child is six months the outcome is going to be far better than trying to do that when they're 16 years old for the first time. Absolutely. So, so Lane, where does this controversy come from on, on doing surgery on these children? In, in other words, you know, why, why, why are there groups who are trying to get into the, into the exam room and get between doctors and parents of children who have these problems and keep them from uh, uh, making decisions about about uh, surgeries that that they wish their children to have. It's not new. This has been around for at least twenty years. When I when I came into practice, um, 
this issue just started to to, to blossom. Uh, it then had a hiatus for a little while and has now come back with uh, significant vengeance. But I think where it stems from is that I we weren't we were pretty good. We meaning the pediatric urologic and I guess in those days too pediatric surgical uh, techniques were okay. They weren't nearly what they are today. They were in their infancy, and the outcomes for some patients were excellent. And we know that from from surveys that the, there was significant patient satisfaction, but the satisfaction was not universal. There were several patients who needed many, many surgeries afterwards. There wasn't great satisfaction, but unfortunately that's true with any surgery that you're starting to learn to do. And unfortunately there are some patients who didn't do as well. And there were some patients who um, weren't satisfied to the point that they wanted uh, a reversal. And so it started to peek its head that there were people who wanted to say, you know something, maybe we need to stop. And I think the stop was about learning to do the surgeries better. And today's techniques are far different than the techniques that were used back then. And we know that we're so much better now than we were uh, 30, 40 years ago that it's much harder for us to accept that argument that things were bad. And it's interesting because the, um, the noise that was made um, I had a partner who, unfortunately, is, is, has passed, who was on one of the um, flamboyant shows on television. I don't want to necessarily give away the name of the uh, the host, but it was uh, it was not Oprah and it wasn't Donahue. It was one of the <laughs> other shows. And a group of patients who were much older, who had had many, many operations, were on a panel, and the person cut to commercial and said, and when we come back, we're going to tell you why it's okay. This doctor is going to tell you why it's okay to cut off your child's penis. <laughs> and and fortunately, uh, my partner's daughter, who's an attorney, told the host, we're not going to go on unless you change the segue. And they got up and got ready to leave, and fortunately, they changed the segue. But the concept to the audience, even though it wasn't the television audience, was there, and the nature of the conversation was still one of antagonism. Well, the antagonism never went away. And... Um, it's just been simmering under the under the uh, surface for a while, and now the last four years or five years or so, it's really started to snowball. You know, I, I agree with everything that you've said. I think there's another thing that that um, really made this uh, um, uh, bubble up to the surface, and I and the um, there there were uh, there was. At the time that many of these surgeries were being done in their infancy, we were we were really uh, the pediatric. I say we the pediatric urology community was was um, operating under the um, best scientific knowledge that we had of the day, and we were making the decisions that we thought were the correct decisions, not because we were doing something that was fringe or that was experimental, but we thought we were making the right decisions. And what we didn't know back then was the effect of hormones on the brain in in the in uterine environment. And many of these children were gender reassigned, and they never were comfortable with their sex the sex of rearing was not consistent with what their brains were were telling them and they were always unhappy and that's 
that's information that came up from Johns Hopkins University and and other places and and influenced what I would like to say is a moratorium on on this kind of surgery and we're at a hard break and I'd like you to comment on that when we get right back in the next segment okay Lane so stay with us The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're back in the Doctor's Lounge. My guest, Lane Palmer, the um, president of the Societies for Pediatric Urology. Lane, I, I left you with a, uh, a question about uh, um, the another factor that I think uh, um, really led to a change in the whole attitude about how pediatric urologists address children with ambiguous genitalia. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that. And, you know, it's un- we, we can only work with the information, the medical information, the scientific information that we have. And we never assume that the, the gathering of that information has stopped. So the goal is not to practice 1950s or 90s medicine. It's to practice 2020 medicine. It's to have a better understanding so we can provide the best care for our patients and the best information for their families in helping to make those decisions. Um, You know, unfortunately, the data that came from Hopkins turned out not to be correct. Um, And that didn't even stem from an intersex case. It stemmed from a patient who had a circumcision injury and lost the, the entire penis, and so the child was reared as a girl rather than as a boy. And it was felt then that it was nurtured, it wasn't nature that was going to drive your, your, your sense of gender and your sense of uh, gender identity. And we now know that that is not true, and it took a generation to understand that. So unfortunately, we're being assessed by the other side based on anachronistic historical perspective. We shouldn't be gauged based on the 1950s. We should be gauged on what's present and what's current. So, so Lane, so the other side, the other side, just to, to clarify what, what the, 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 um, the conflict is right now are there are, there are doctors like yourself, like me, who, who see children and we are doing surgery on abnormal genitals, um, 
uh, that uh, that we um, uh, have discussed with parents, and parents want us to to uh, perform surgery to make their children um, uh, consistent with with um, what what their their um, their gender is, um, and uh, boys who are boys. Um, to uh, fix any problems in girls who are girls the same and the the um, the there are people who are um, who are very much against that who, who are these people um, they are patient advocates they are uh, essentially a group of patients or or their family members who are of the mindset that the decision to do surgery should rest in the hands of the child and that there would be no repercussions of being raised to whatever age, and that question is really at, is open right now, but if the age of consent is 18, uh, let's use that for the moment, so if someone would, would um, be raised with the ambiguity and they make the presumption that there is no negative outcome of being raised with the ambiguity. We're not saying that there is definitely going to be a negative outcome psychologically of having ambiguity, but they're denying that there even would be such a bad outcome. Um, so this it's primarily a group of families, groups of patients, uh, some who had bad outcomes, some of that original group that I alluded to before. Um, and this has been picked up and um, endorsed by groups such as the Human Rights Watch. And and so the the latest assault on on trying to um, interfere with parents' rights, and it's a parent rights issue. It's um, a, a group trying to um, influence. Um, medical decision making, and not just it, with doctors, but doing this with either state legislatures or doing this with um, with medical societies coming out with position statements, trying to um, get to put a stop to certain surgeries. And so, th- this case really now, right now, the argument is centered around one particular group of patients with one particular. A problem. Can you um, can you clarify that? So the, the most common cause of of intersex states or disorders of sex development is called congenital adrenal hyperplasia, uh, or CAH. And CAH is a, 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 a there's a defect in one of several enzymes that's responsible for the production of steroids in your body, and the adrenal gland sits. There are two of them, one above, that sits above each of the two kidneys. And in those circumstances, instead of making a, uh, one particular type of steroid, the body will end up making much more testosterone. And yet, the, so the impact of the testosterone is to make the, the genitalia look more male-like um, in spite of what the, the genetics happen to be. And this is by far the most common uh, it accounts for about 90% of, of all intersex uh, situations, not just genital atypia, as we mentioned before, because that's, that's a very different. This would be a minor subset of genital atypia. So in, among the CAH patients, um, the 
um, the issue of of future function uh, is really not at hand. They have these these women have uteruses, they have ovaries, they are able to carry pregnancies and deliver uh, those pregnancies. And so the issue is first and foremost to medically make sure that uh, that medicine is provided that helps to offset the en- the enzyme problem. So there are medications that need to be taken for the lifetime so that patients are able to respond to stress, for example, that their sodium levels don't change. Um, and then the second issue is what to do with the genitalia. And so um, CAH is, is by far the most important in terms of number uh, of, the situ- of the conditions of CAH. And the CARES Foundation, that's C-A-R-E-S Foundation, is the advocacy group that parents go to that are that are run by parents for CAH and the CAH uh, population and the CARES Foundation is really in step with the thinking that we're talking about today that parents have the right to make the decision parents have the right to all the information available and the inform- and to know what information is not available uh, so that they individually as a family can make decisions as to whether or not their child will have surgery and when they're going to have surgery, if they're going to proceed with surgery. So, so thousands of children who have been affected by this condition over the years have undergone successful surgery, and I, I might add that in many cases this is not just a cosmetic issue or even a functional issue. It's, it's a medical a, a surgical medical issue that can affect their kidneys and their bladder, and they can become um, very sick if they don't have the proper surgery to correct the the um, congenital abnormality. There is certainly a risk of urinary tract infection. There's risk of of potential sepsis in someone who gets a very bad urinary tract infection. Obstruction. Uh, uh, and obstruction as well. So th- there are several conditions that can, or outcomes that can happen if surgery doesn't happen. Um, it, you know, if nothing is done and people have the normal sexual urges that they may have, then if there's any sexual interaction in someone who has not had surgery, the the, the negative impact is significant. And so, then, and then in in please. girls who are. 12 or 13 who might not yet be able to assent to surgery who start to menstruate, this can also become a a medical emergency when they can't expel that blood. That is correct. So so we have a situation where there's an advocacy group that is trying to keep parents from being able to go to urologists and have um, surgery done on their ch- on their girls who are born with this very um, uncommon yet common um, problem that affects the way that their genitals are formed internally and externally, and and so they have they have gone to extraordinary means to try to stop this surgery from happening, haven't they? Yes, they have. They've, they've, it's been a multi-prong approach. They've, um, as you mentioned before, they've worked with several medical societies trying to impact a moratorium on surgery. They attempted this at the, even at the level of the AMA and um, 
unfortunately, uh, about a month or so ago, the AMA came out with a policy that advocates for full disclosure and for uh, the ability of parents to have the right to make medical decisions for their children and for the children to be part of that decision-making to the extent possible. And clearly, um, that 12-year-old that you alluded to might have a very different impact on the decision than the nonverbal six-month-old. So uh, it's, no one is advocating for carving out the child, and that's a misconception that, that is on the other side, that we're trying to exclude the child. We're not. There are children who come from overseas to this country and are seeking medical help, and they're well old enough to be able to, imp to impart their feelings on, on their bodies and, and their feelings as to whether or not something should be done for them. But the vast majority of children who have had this surgery are actually very happy, and, and in, in studies that have... Um, and and I know every study can be um, criticized, but when they're um, asked about the timing of the surgery, whether they were happy to have this done when they were babies or would they have wanted to wait, the vast majority are are overwhelmingly happy that they had it as as a baby. That is correct. So, so um, what what I'd like uh, to uh, get into next with you, Lane, is, is that um, the, uh, this, is, this is a slippery slope, in my opinion, on, on two fronts. One is the, um, the fact that this is now being, uh, today it's children who have congenital adrenal hyperplasia. And, and trying to stop genital surgery in them. But there are advocacy groups for, uh, that are um, against any kind of genital surgery in children. We've seen groups that have opposed something even as common as circumcisions. And so that's, that's one slippery slope that I see happening if the people who are advocating against this prevail. The second is an even bigger issue, which is parental rights. And who has the right to um, come between... Let me, let me say this a different way. Parents have rights to make decisions for their children. When does it become a point where they no longer have those rights? That, I agree with you, is the overriding question here. Parents have the right to make decisions for their children regarding their education um, and clearly of their medical care. And there's no public health issue. You know, if you didn't, there's the whole issue surrounding vaccinations. But there's a public health issue with having measles outbreaks because people weren't vaccinated, and we see the impact of that. Um, but it is a slippery slope because once you've legislated, and there are legislative threats, we've fortunately been able to help um, prevent some of those threats, but there are real threats looming. I'm sure we'll get into that, um, that once you've legislated the inability of a parent to make a decision on behalf of their child's health care, where does it end? Where, where does it end that parents can't make decisions on all of the other factors or several of the factors that go into raising their child? Um, it, it's a really... Uh, 
very slippery slope. So we're going to be coming up to a hard break in about a minute. And um, uh, what I would like to uh, – you, you um, brought up the issue about legislation. So um, let me just set the table, and then when we come back, I'm going to have you uh, talk about the legislation and, and what's happened and where. But there, these the, the groups that you've talked about interact – and Human Rights Watch, they are well-funded, and they um, are, and, and these are emotional issues, and they've gone to state legislatures in several states. They are planning on doing it again in, in some states, and they've got other states in their sights moving forward. So I think we're at a hard break right now, and I want you to answer that specific question when we get to the last segment in the Doctor's Lounge. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We're in the final segment of today's Doctor's Lounge. Thanks for being with us. Um, you can uh, get this um, uh, webcast if you or the podcast if you want to by going to iTunes or coming back to the website and downloading it. And I hope that you'll share this with with uh, your friends. This is an important topic. My guest today, Lane Palmer, the president of the Societies for Pediatric Urology. So, Lane, legislation. Where, where, what's, what has um, been uh, so far put down? What's on the horizon? Well, fortunately, nothing has been legislated yet, but there have been attempts on at several uh, states, uh, most notably in Nevada, that try to. Uh, place a moratorium. The, the legislation efforts are all the same. It's to ban the ability to perform surgery for genital atypia, because it's very broad, for genital atypia in patients until they're old enough to make decisions for themselves. What does that, that mean, genital atypia? That means a phallus, in the boy, it's a phallus, a penis that doesn't look exactly as it might in a textbook. And that can even mean a, a, a foreskin abnormality, a problem with a boy who's uncircumcised, right? Absolutely. It could even mean testicles that are not down in the scrotum. It could mean that. I think that the legislation, for medical purposes, if there was a real uh, clear-cut 
identifiable uh, preventative benefit of surgery, they would probably make exception for it, such as that case. Okay, so so go on. And so the efforts have fortunately not been able to go very far in some of the states that they've tried to do that. Uh, we fortunately, the SPU has been able to work uh, well with some of the legislators or the legislature itself to um, educate those folks because they're only hearing one side. And the side is misrepresented. It's often blended with facts that are uh, not pertinent to the situation, extrapolations of situations that just don't apply to the, to the, to the whole. And we're able to not allow those legislation to go forward. However, in California, last year there was a resolution by uh, Senator Weiner uh, that did pass and we didn't come to the to the to know about this until it was very late and at that point it was much more difficult to uh prevent the resolution from passing however we were able to uh have certain amendments accepted that helped to soften the the draconian uh effort that uh, this resolution would have uh caused families in California and so we weren't quite sure whether or not the senator was planning on placing this as a bill in this current uh, session, but it has come to our attention that that is his intent. And so if it were to pass, there would be, based as currently uh, written, there would be a moratorium on patients, and patients wouldn't have a choice in the state of California to be able to have their child operated on if these parents deemed that that's what they wanted to do. And one of the negative effects of this is that uh, those families who are, have children such as this, who have the means, can simply leave the state of California. But there are a lot of people who can't afford to leave the state. They don't have the means to go to another state. Their insurance may not cover the surgery in another state. And so there's a real socioeconomic uh, discrepancy potentially here in the state of California. Uh, and those who can afford will go out and seek care, and those who can't afford will unfortunately have to abide by this kind of legislation. Absolutely. And not only that, but it would criminalize doctors who are performing surgeries that are acceptable medical procedures everywhere, except in a state that puts a moratorium on it. That would be true. And um, impacts the... Uh, the um, affordability because insurance companies will probably find the reason now not to cover those kinds of procedures and the full economic burden would fall on the families. Right. Are there other states that are at risk for similar legislation? We don't know for sure, but we would anticipate that like-minded states, Vermont, Oregon, would be, they're sitting back and waiting to see what happens in California. And were it to pass in California, it, it's very—it's not much of a stretch to anticipate that those those states would then fall in line because of the ease in which it, it could happen, since they can just follow the California footprint. You know, I, we're running out of time, and I just want to touch on one last issue before we conclude, and that is the um, the people who are trying to shut this down are. Um, they they are just relentless and they are um they're just disingenuous and the arguments that they make are are um are emotional and unfair and 
in in one um, uh, newspaper article, they uh, compared uh, people who do what we do, pediatric urologists, and the people who are doing this to genital mutilators, and um, and they're really is such a thing as genital mutilation, female genital mutilation, which our specialty has stood up to. We identified it when it came to this country from abroad, and we we have really been the group that has has uh, um, uh, pointed this out and uh, and championed a, a, a fight against this. Why don't, why don't you expand on that a little bit? Well, how you're, you're you're spot on in terms of of our role in trying to prevent or, or not allow this to happen. There's a significant difference between genital mutilation and what we're doing. In fact, I don't see the relationship at all. To be honest with you, the the goal of those cultures, and again, it's not a very large number of people. However, the goal of the cultures is to um, prevent their women from being sexually active with anyone other than their potential spouse. And so if if sexual activity could be made uncomfortable and less desirable, these women wouldn't seek uh, extramarital affairs or or free marital sexual activity. And so those surgeries are meant to cut the clitoris create scarring or even remove portions of the clitoris for the purposes of damaging the the organ so that there's no sexual sensation. That is the explicit goal of those surgeries. Our goals are anything as far from that as you could express. That's not our goal. Um, Our goal is to um, provide um, a much more expected physical appearance and try to facilitate full function, sexual and, ur- and urinary uh, and, and gynecological for these folks. Um, and so our goals are complete opposite. It's not intended to inflict pain. It's intended to provide a more typical and expected life on all of its functions. So it's very, very different. Um, and yet, yes, you're right. They blur all the lines as best they can for the purposes of, of drama, because without the drama, if we just listen to the reason and get educated, they really wouldn't have as much of an argument as they do have. And we're not discounting the, the, what we don't know. We don't discount the, the experiences of those folks who did not have a perfect or even a good outcome. We're sorry for that. As, a, as an organization, as a group of physicians, we never want our patients to experience bad outcomes. Um, that's never our intent, and that's never satisfactory to us that, oh, well, so well, you, you know, you, you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. That's not our intent, and it's not acceptable to us. So we don't discount the experience of the others, and we respect the rights of families to decide not to do the surgery. But what we don't um, really accept is the concept that that there's scientific basis behind that. We have enough experience behind that that that's, um, uh, that, that should be um, a point of education without facts behind it. That's a gestalt at this point, and it may turn out to be right. We really don't know that answer at this point. So the goal here is not to uh, to 
dispel that that's an option. Uh, it may be an option, but you can't legislate an option that we really don't know the outcome of. So that's really our point. Parents are entitled to know all the information. They're entitled to know what we don't know so that they, in their hearts and with their brains, with the information, can help to make the right decision for their children. And, all, and in, yeah. a, multi, in a, um, a multidisciplinary fashion, not just with pediatric urologists. That's critical. I can't speak to psychiatric or psychological development or the endocrine issues. This is an extraordinarily complex problem that requires the experience and the brains of multiple uh, folks. And the approach to these children started multidisciplinary, but should only be done in a multidisciplinary fashion with as an expansive group as possible so that parents have the resources that they need to help make the decisions, not just a decision at first, but there are going to be other decisions that happen as the children uh, grow up in terms of understanding their bodies and understanding their their psychosocial development. Right. And so it's important that the team always be there right. and that the team be there from the beginning. So um, we are coming to the end, and I wanted to uh, just give you a, a, a minute to wrap up and, and tell everybody what you would like to, uh, the take-home message for them, and and if they want more information, where they can go, and if they wish to um, support the effort of parental rights in medical decision-making, how they can support this this cause. So in, in a nutshell, patients who have intersex states or disorders of sex development, DSD, are is a complex group of, of patients whose parents have the absolute final right to decide the gender of rearing. Doctors don't make those decisions. Doctors educate parents to be able to make those decisions. And that should be very, very clear, regardless of what they hear uh, from others. Um, and we are working hard to maintain those rights for parents. And there are other groups that are doing the same. So if folks want to read more about this or understand more about this, there are two sites I would recommend. The first and foremost, I think it's by far the best, is the CARES Foundation. And they're, um, they're very educational, they're very passionate, uh, and they understand the, the, the issues even better than we do because they are the patients and the patient's family. And their website is caresfoundation.org. Um, they're very educated, they're very knowledgeable, they're very experienced. So that's a great place. The other would be our website, the SPU uh, website, and that would be spuonline.org. Um, where there's information there for people to be educated on. And there's also a portal there for those who might want to contribute to the to our uh, advocacy efforts. Um, the, there are expenses, as we all know, in, in working with this. There's public relations costs. There's lobbyist costs. And uh, we would appreciate anyone who uh, is fighting for the rights of parents to maintain their uh, right to make medical decisions for their children to help support our cause. We Great. very much appreciate it. Lane, it's been uh, my privilege and honor to have you on today, and I enjoyed our discussion and, and look forward to uh, the good work that the SPU is doing and will do in the future. Thank you, Hal. Keep up the good work as well. This was terrific. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for being with us today in the Doctor's Lounge.
You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.